Hope you're doing well wherever you are. Gonna pick up on some of the stuff that <clears throat> we left with last time. Kind of stick with this same theme for at least one more live video. I've gotten into looking at, if you've watched the last couple of videos, looking at how the cycle of religion and the psychological abuse of religion, specifically the Christian religion that I come out of, right, is very akin to the cycle of narcissistic abuse or someone who is in a relationship with a narcissistic abuser. And these relationships, it's very well studied, very well documented, will go through three primary phases. There will be an idealization phase, a devaluing phase, and a discard phase. And so in my last two live videos, I've talked about the relationships between the narcissistic abusive cycle and the abusive cycle that we can go through in religion and with our faith. And so I want you to think about it this way. You can go back and listen to those. I'm not going to keep going over and over that material. I want to talk about some things we can do to heal today. But I want you to consider that a person who is in a relationship with a narcissistic abuser will develop certain problems in their life, certain mental and emotional problems, uh, lots of anxiety, insecurity, self-doubt, shame, self-hatred, in some cases a total loss of self, being on high alert all the time, being hyper-diligent, well, hyper-diligent, but I meant to say hyper-vigilant all the time as well. And so uh, I want to uh, bring out a little bit of those parallels in this talk and then talk about some things that we can heal from. So my point is a person with who's been subjected to that kind of narcissistic abuse will express a lot of those traits that I just talked about, a lot of those unpleasant traits that I just talked about. And a person who has been in a religious cult, a person who suffered from religious abuse, a person who has really bought in and devoted their lives to the doctrines and teachings will suffer a lot of those same things. They're suffering it in their relationship with God. The person in the narcissistic relationship is suffering it in their relationship with the narcissist. But there's a lot of similarities. So, again, just giving people some time to jump on before we really jump into it. Good to see Tom and Marietta and Roger and Ben and Leah. Nice to see all of you. Hope you're doing well today. So I was reminded of a story from the Bible that I thought was pertinent to what we've been talking about as far as how religious abuse mirrors narcissistic relationships or relationships with narcissistic abuse or with narcissists. And the story of Cain and Abel came to mind. Most people, I think, will be familiar, even if you're not even if you're just loosely familiar with the Bible, most people have heard the story of Cain and Abel. And almost always the focus is on Cain killing Abel. It's, it's 
a story about sibling rivalry. It's a story about murder. It's, and you know, it can be all those things. And by the way, not every ancient person took this story literally. <laughs> not every one of the church fathers took this story literally. The story of Adam and Eve and the story of Cain and Abel. A lot of people down through the ages have realized that it's myth, but myth can speak to things in our lives. It can speak to realities in our lives that we experience. So in that way, sometimes the myth is truer than the literal interpretation because the literal interpretation has one historical meaning, whereas a mythological meaning can be a mirror, if you will, that we hold up to ourselves that can teach us things about ourselves and tell us things about ourselves. So again, the focus of this myth, this story of Cain and Abel, these two brothers, if you don't know the story, it's in Genesis chapter 4, you can read it, pause it, read it, or read it later, look at it, come back and listen again. But it's the story of these two brothers, and we focus on the sibling rivalry that's there. We focus on the murderous parts of it that's there. And nobody ever talks about the beginning of it. Nobody ever talks about what's hinted at in the very beginning of Genesis 4 about the relationship between Cain and his mother. And then, particularly when you understand some things about the original languages and cultural meanings, the story really does become quite powerful and quite brilliant and can speak to us in this way. You have to remember that Eve is the one that messed things up, right? Adam and Eve were living in the garden. They were doing great. And then, uh, you know, Eve listened to the serpent and she ate of the fruit, gave to her husband Adam, and it all got messed up from there, right? Like Jimmy Buffett, like the Jimmy Buffett song. Uh, some people claim that there's a woman to blame, right? Well, the woman, the ultimate woman to blame is Eve in the garden. <clears throat> but God gives Eve a promise. God gives Eve a promise. He tells her that there will come forth a man-child, that she will give birth to a man-child who will crush the head of the serpent, even though the serpent will bruise his heel. And we used to love to, as evangelicals, uh, charismatics, point back to that passage of that verse of scripture in Genesis 3.15 as what we call the proto-evangelion. Proto meaning the first, and evangelion is the Greek word for gospel. So the first gospel, the first good news, it's not a bad term. And then, of course, we're able to weave the story of Jesus and his battle with the devil and his victory, but yet through his suffering, we're able to weave all of that meaning into Genesis 3.15. But it is the first good news in this sense, that Adam and Eve had just lost their place in the garden. And so God gives them a promise in the story. The Lord gives them a promise. And the promise is that she will have a man-child who will reverse the things or at least extract vengeance upon the serpent. You will have a man-child who will extract vengeance on the serpent, potentially reversing the curse, right? So that's a pretty big promise for her to hold on to. So that's kind of the last we hear in Genesis chapter 3. And then in Genesis chapter 4, it says that Adam and Eve made love, and they gave birth to a child. 
But it doesn't just say they gave birth to a child. It says they gave birth to a man-child, that, that Eve gave birth to a man-child, or Eve gave birth to a son, and then she had a second son, Abel. So Cain was the firstborn. This is important because according to the law, according to Jewish law, uh, Hebraic law, the firstborn, whatever opens the womb, belongs to the Lord uh, in, in a special way, that the Lord has favor and preference to the firstborn, to that which opens the womb. And she says, <clears throat> Eve says, look, I have, I have, some translations say, I have received a man-child from the Lord. But in the original Hebrew, it might better be expressed, I have made a man-child with the Lord, or I have made a man-child like the Lord. So the first thing that we see in that statement is we see this godlike status that shows up whenever you're in a relationship with a narcissistic person. Because the narcissistic person wants to be worshipped. They want to have a godlike place in your life. And Eve is hinting at that in her language, especially in the Hebrew. I have I have made a man child like the Lord. I have I, I have a man child with the Lord, and you are the promise, son. You are the one who is going to heal my pain. You're the one who's going to fix my problem. I messed it up because of the serpent, and God promised me that I would give birth to a man child who would heal my pain, who would heal my past, who would fix what I had messed up. And you, Cain, are that Person, And this is exactly what happens in narcissistically abusive relationships. The narcissist has pain. The narcissist has emptiness. The narcissistic person has been abused. They feel shame. They feel um, whatever it is. There's pain. That's the point. There's pain. Just like Eve had pain from her past. They bring pain into the relationship. And then they get this idealized version of someone who is supposed to heal that pain, who is supposed to fix things for them, who's supposed to take it away. And they create an idealized image of that person and they take a, a, a they 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 relate to this idealized version that exists in their minds. They never relate to the actual person. So this is exactly the language that we see here that Eve is doing with Cain. And so when we get to the point where Cain and Abel have both grown up and they're bringing their offerings to the, to the Lord, and it says that Cain was a tiller of the ground, that Cain worked the ground, and he brought the fruit of his labors. And then there's something also very subtle and very interesting when God judges their offerings, it says that the Lord looked at Cain and his offering. Or or uh, in another translation, a better way of saying it, the Lord looked into Cain and his offering. Because remember, the firstborn under the law belongs to the Lord. <laughs> so when he's presenting, he's not just presenting his offering, he's presenting himself. And when the Lord looks at Cain or looks into Cain, it says it doesn't say that he rejected him. It says that he did not respect his offering. He did not honor his offering. He devalued 
Cain's offering. He devalued what Cain had presented to him. <laughs> so see the idealization phase. First off with Eve, I have a man child, someone who's going to come and heal the pain with the Lord. And then you begin to see from the Lord the devaluation stage of rejecting Cain's offering. But there's also something very important in here because, and this is why it's so key to healing, why I'm talking about this today. It says that the Lord said to Cain, Cain, why has your countenance fallen? In the Hebrew, it's panim, it's face, but it's more than just your, your physical face. Panim is your presence. It is your authenticity. It is your, your self-worth. It's your self-esteem. It's, it's your countenance. And he says, why has your countenance fallen? So the idea is, is that the Lord is looking into Cain and his countenance, his face, his presence, his integrity, his authenticity is not there. And then this word panim face is used throughout the rest of the story in a fascinating way that we'll talk about. But I, I think the issue is that he's a tiller of the ground. And, of course, earlier in the story, we're told that uh, Adam was made from the dust of the earth. Adam was made from the dust of the earth. So there's metaphors in here where Eve is trying to make Cain in a certain image and not allowing for, and this is where, especially if there's... Uh, an unhealthy relationship, specifically with the mother in childhood, where there's not, you're not allowed to develop from the inside out. You're not, you're not nurtured, corrected, yes, boundaries, yes, but there's also nurturing and there's development, but not in an overbearing sort of way either. It's really important for mothers to allow their children to individuate throughout their lives, starting at two years old, starting when the child first starts to say no. And so there's the kind of narcissistic abuse that is pushing the child away. There's the kind of narcissistic abuse, obviously, that is uh, um, what we think of as garden variety abuse, right, or neglect, the things that you would get called, CPS would get called for. But this type of abuse is very different. This type of abuse is a swarming abuse. This type of abuse is an overbearingness. This type of abuse is a, I don't want to allow you to separate from me. I don't really want you to individuate from me. It's a smothering. It's, it's, a, it's an overdoing it with love and affirmation and, and all this stuff. But it's coming from a place. It's coming from the place. Because that person's not whole, that person has pain, and you have to fix it, so I'm going to smother you, <laughs> right? Mother to child, we're talking about mother to child type of narcissistic abuse right now. But also it's coming from a place of I'm going to mold you and shape you. Um, and underneath that message, now, yes, there is molding and shaping that goes on, but this is an overbearing type. This is a demanding type, right? could come from the father, too. It could be the the father, you know, always wanted to be a professional baseball player and blew out his knee in high school. And so he starts little Johnny off, you know, at three years old playing baseball, determined to live his own dream to, uh, through his child. We see that a lot with men, right? So I hope you kind of get what I'm saying here. This is what I see going on 
at the deeper levels of this story. And when that happens, then our countenance falls. It's never shaped. And then we become tillers of the soil. If we think about the soil as us and our origins, we start trying to work on a false self and build up a false self so that we can not disappoint the narcissist, the narcissistic mother or the abusive father so that we can not disappoint the intimate partner or not disappoint our boss or uh, we develop a people-pleasing sort of mentality and a people-pleaser sort of attitude. And then, of course, this just leads to chaos, right, in our other relationships. We go out and we reject other people and we kill them, whatever. There's lots of ways you can kill people, by the way. <laughs> I hope this doesn't get taken down. Oh, Jesus. I didn't mean it like that. I meant that we can uh, hate them in our hearts. We can ruin their reputation. We can gossip about them. We can uh, lie about them. All kinds of ways that we can bring this sort of metaphorically, but read this story metaphorically and bring this uh, into people's lives and bring this kind of pain into people's lives. And then ultimately there's accountability and Cain meets with the Lord again. And this is where Panim gets used over and over again. Um, but basically it says that Cain was driven from Eden or from the face, from the Panim of Eden. He was driven from the Panim of the Lord, the face of the Lord. And he went out through the, out the face of the earth. And he ended up in a place called Nod, which was a place called Wandering. Wandering. So there's the discard phase. So you see we have the idealization phase. I've had a man-child with the Lord. The devaluing stage. Why is your countenance fallen? If you would do better, you'd be accepted. Your offering's not good enough. And then finally, the discard phase, right? So we see these three phases. Now I want to bring this around to how I see this working out in church and then what can we do about this? So the way I see this in church, and this is interesting because, uh, almost forever, almost since the New Testament was written, the story of Adam and Eve has been used as a mystical metaphor for the relationship between Christ and the church. Adam representing, uh, Christ and Eve representing the church. So that typology is in there. So we can do it this way. Eve can be a type of a religious system. Eve can be a type of a church system. And I don't suppose anybody's ever started a church, at least in the people I ran with. And when we started our church, there was a vision from the Lord. There was a promise from the Lord. There was some sense of vocation or some sense of calling that we were going to reach our town. We're going to reach people for Christ. We're going to reach the world for Christ. We're going to have a worldwide ministry and all this various different stuff, right? And that's a promise. But in order to do that, you have to have people, <laughs> You have to have people that you're reaching and you have to have people that are giving and you have to have people that are helping you reach people and all this stuff. Right. And so what can happen then is when you walk in to the door of a church, you are not necessarily going to be related to as a person 
you are going to be related to oftentimes as a commodity. Now, this isn't necessarily done nefariously, and this isn't done consciously. It is done by a lot of people. They do it nefariously. They do it consciously. They do it manipulatively. Um, but for for a lot of us, it's just a subconscious thing. Like I, I I need people. People, the Lord is bringing me people. And then what's really scary is if you get into these groups where they're into spiritual fathering and spiritual mothering, because now I have a child with the Lord. <laughs> You're my spiritual son. You're my spiritual daughter. And by the way, Cain's name means possession, to take possession of. And so what happens is the narcissist takes possession of you. In some ways, the church community will take possession of you. They'll see you as a means to an end. They'll see you as part of their vision or a way to fulfill that vision. And they will then get a photoshopped idea of who you need to be, what you need to be doing and where you need to be in order for this vision to come to pass, in order for this to happen. So that system then gets created. So even though the people in the system aren't narcissists, some of them are, but not everybody. There's a lot of good people, a lot of good people that are giving their lives to ministry that are not in any way intentionally trying to perpetuate any kind of abuse. They're just part of a system that's messed up. And so Eve represents this messed up system of idealization, devaluation, and discard, and all that goes with that. The point that I'm trying to make, oh, oh so that that's where I'm, I'm going to leave the story of Cain and Abel, but interesting parallels there, huh? The point I'm trying to make is that, especially when it comes to religion, there is a lot of fantasy. There's a lot of shared fantasy. There's a lot going on in the imagination. Not just, you know, people who are hardcore atheists will say, you know, God is imaginary. God's your imaginary friend, imaginary person in the sky. I'm not talking about that part of it specifically, an imaginary devil. I'm not even talking about that. I'm saying that there's a lot going on in the subjective imaginations of people about you and you about them and how you relate to one another around this sort of shared fantasy. So this is where I want to talk about a little bit about subjective experience and subjective reality versus objective experience and objective reality. And there is a line between the two. Let me give you some definitions. When I'm talking about objective reality, I'm talking about the world out there. I'm talking about planet Earth. I'm talking about you guys. I'm talking about my kids, my family, my friends, uh, the world out there, food, coffee, things that we generally have a general consensus about an objective agreement. Or you could say it this way. I'm talking about things that can be observed and things that can be measured and things that can be quantified. That's the objective universe and world out there. The subjective universe and the subjective world is the world of our internal life, the world of our thoughts, 
the world of our feelings, the world of our beliefs, the world of our imagination, all of that stuff. That's actually the world we live in. That's the world we live in. We live in the subjective world and we interact with the objective world. Let's say that again. We live in the subjective world. We live in a world that is unseen. We live in a world that's unseen by anybody but us. We're the only ones that can see our imaginations. We're the only ones that can see and experience our thoughts and our beliefs and our emotions and our moods and our states of being and our traits and our personality, our memories, our personal history. None of that is observable. None of that is quantifiable. None of that is measurable. None of that is is it follows any of the laws of physics. And this is why I, I take issue, and I'm just going to keep doing this for a while, but this is why I take issue with scientific materialism, because uh, the scientific materialist says there is nothing but atoms, and they will say that your dreams, your visions, this world inside of you is merely the byproduct of uh, brain function, but not only is there no evidence to prove that, not only is there not a good theory to prove that in neuroscience, the evidence actually goes contrary to that, but that's an episode for another time. So I feel like there needs to be a deconstruction for people in the religion of atheism, in the religion of scientific materialism, just as much as we need a deconstruction from toxic imposing religion because I think, uh, and you know, people are free to do whatever they want, but it's very limiting and, and, uh, it's very, very limiting. And, but what, what's so interesting to me is that the, the, the scientific materialists will say, well, it's so clear that we exist in this physical world. We can all agree upon it. It's so second nature so if I'm going to believe in a God, you, you've got to be able to prove it to me using the scientific method, which the scientific method is great, but it's very limited because it can only deal with what's out there. It doesn't necessarily deal with anything that's in here. And yet every experience that you have, every thought that you have, every belief that you have, every time I take a drink of coffee, every time I hear someone speak, I am filtering it through my subjective reality. Every time I go to sleep and have a dream, that is my subjective reality. Every time I make a decision before I speak about what I'm going to say, I am in my subjective reality. So the truth is we interact with objective reality. We interact with the world of materialism and the world that's out there, but we live in a world of consciousness. We live in an unseen world and in an unseen reality. We live in subjective reality. And this is our problem. And this is our problem in relationships. And this is our problem in religion. And this is the problem in all codependent relationships and all narcissistic relationships is because no one can enter your world as a citizen. If if you come and visit me in Colorado, you could come to my city and stay in a hotel. <laughs> if you're really close, you can come and stay in my house. 
I can invite you and welcome you into my physical location. We can share that space, but no one can come inside your subjective reality in the same way that you might have them come into your house or that you might have them come into your city. They can't do it. It's impossible. You and you alone live in your subjective reality. You and you alone live in your subjective universe. You can try to, and then you try to interact. You can try to explain it. You can try to communicate it. You can try to express it. You can try to talk about it. But you cannot share the space with anyone. And this is why I think that making yourself a priority is so important and why religion is so damning and so damaging because it forces you to surrender your subjective universe and believe that you can invite another entity into that subjective universe to rule over it and to control it and to transform it, to invite the Holy Spirit into you, to sanctify you and separate you and cleanse your thoughts and Cleanse and heal your heart to invite Jesus into your life. Now you're, you it's a shared fantasy. It's not real. But now here's the truth. There are a lot of inhabitants. Ah, let me, let me say it this way. The, 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 the Jewish, Jewish sages used to say that whoever saves a person saves a universe. If you save one person's life, it's as though you've saved an entire world. And that's because your subjective universe is just as complex, if not more complex, just as past finding out as this physical world in which we live. It's massive in there. And it's almost impossible to control sometimes. When I say impossible to control, I mean... Uh, you know, those stupid little songs that get in your head that you hate and get on your nerves and you can't get rid of them and you can't get it to quit going. Or when your mind is perseverating on something and just thinking about something over and over and over again, or you lay down to sleep and it's just super overactive, or you're trying to pay attention to something out here and you're daydreaming over here. Or, I mean, you, you, you could just, it, it's infinite. If you were to spend time with yourself, time in your subjective universe, it, it would be infinite uh, the things that you could explore and experience within yourself and about yourself. So you live inside that world. Now, whenever you populate that world with a person, and here's what I mean. I, I said no one can share your space. But l- l- let, me, let me back up because I don't want to confuse. So I'm living in the subjective universe. I'm living in the subjective world. And then I'm interacting with the objective world out there. So I'm bringing my universe to your universe, and the two universes are trying to interact through communication, speech, touch, time, acts of service, all all that stuff, right? But <clears throat> eventually, I walk away from you. I, I, I mean, I just leave your presence. I don't mean like you're abandoned. I mean, you, you just... So how do you develop constancy? So a child, first couple of years of life... They have no object uh, constancy 
And so mom leaves, mom's gone. It's, it's out of sight, out of mind. If I, uh, put something behind my back, the object has disappeared. When the baby starts to look for the object and knows it's behind my back, they have some sense of object permanence. This is why peekaboo is a fun game to play with kids, but why they enjoy it so much because they're learning that object permanence. Well, I can have object permanence because in my mind, I have a representation of you when you are not in my presence or I am not in your presence. I'm carrying an internal representation of you. Think about anybody. If I were to mention, I do Freeology Friday with Derek Day. If I mention Derek Day, I have an internal representation. There's a Derek in my brain. I can see him. I can hear him. I know how he thinks, right? So I can sometimes hear his thoughts and voice in my head. So that's a necessary part of development. So it helps me to interact with the world that's out there. But, but, but in abusive relationships or with unhealthy people in general, people have not individuated well, and you can't not do this. We all do this, and I'll show you some examples of it. That person that's in there, that representation of that person, that avatar of that person, can become <clears throat> what they call in psychology an introject. Uh, introject comes from the old, early psychological theories of Freud and Adler and Fritz Perls. Fritz Perls was the first person years ago that I heard talking about introjects. To introject something is to assimilate into this universe that is your inside world, information without critical thinking, or representation that loses the idea that it's representation. You've heard me say before, the map is not the territory. That's my way of saying, distinguishing between subjective reality and objective reality. The map my subjective reality, the representations of people, the pictures, the sounds, the voices, the, the movies, all that stuff that's here, that's the map. The territory is the objective reality out there. And very, very often, there is a huge gap. There is a chasm. There is a huge, uncrossable moat full of dragons in between how a person has constructed their map and what's going on objectively in reality or between the map and the territory. And neuroscientists would say, you know, that psychological problems often occur when we confuse the map with the territory. We think the map is the territory. So an introjection, according to Fritz Perls, is when I receive ideas without checking them at the door first to see if it fits in with my universe to see if it belongs here where I receive um, it's to be like a child so everyone has an interject of their mom and dad everybody or their primary caregivers whoever it was you have an introject and this is what I mean you you don't just have a representation of that person in your mind you have a living being <laughs> That is that representation that's in your mind. 
and in your head. So a lot of people can, and everybody does this, parents, because you don't have the ability to filter for something like the first 11 years of life. You don't really have much of a filter. So everything that you're being taught and everything that you're being told, really, you're just taking it in. And, <clears throat> and so the primary teachers and influencers in your life, they will become introjects. There's nothing wrong with this. This is not uh, something that needs to be avoided. And again, I want to, I just want to say an introject is a person that lives inside your mind, that lives inside your internal universe, who exists in there, but is, is not the same as the person out there. It's a map. So like when I brought up Derek Day earlier, I have a introject, if you will, of Derek Day, but I can distinguish between that and when I'm actually having a conversation with Derek. Now, you would say, Aaron, everybody can distinguish between the representation and what's out there. And the truth is that <clears throat> while consciously they will tell you, yes, I know this person's not here right now, and then they sit down and, yes, I'm relating to this person, but the introject the image the representation the avatar is so strong in the person's mind that subconsciously and unconsciously and unknowingly they are relating to that image this is also how we get the idea psychologically of projection you've heard about that right where you project something some disowned part of yourself some part of yourself that you don't like some part of yourself that you judge and you see it in other people and you get an emotional charge off of it, that can be projection. But real projection is when I am relating to the introject, I'm relating to the avatar, and I'm not relating to you. And so this is the problem with two universes relating because you have to wade through all this stuff. So there is more than one you in a relationship. You know, people say the truth is somewhere in the middle. There's your story. There's my story. And the truth is somewhere in the middle. And there's probably truth to all of it. Well, there's me and the me that you have in your head. And there's you and the you that I have in my head. And the four of us are having a relationship. <laughs> so here's the point. So a lot of people leave home physically, but they never leave home emotionally. A lot of people leave home physically but they still abide under mom or dad's rules because they're still hearing mom in their head. They're still abiding by what mom said. They're still feeling the feelings that mom made you feel when she made you feel ashamed for a behavior that you did. You're still trying to live up to dad's dream so you feel less than you're still trying to be who they told you to be so even though you left physically you might have left physically 10 15 20 40 years ago you might have left physically 40 years ago and yet you still have these two avatars that exist inside of you these interjects that exist inside of you so you still have a relationship with mom and dad your mom and dad may have died decades ago but you still have an internal relationship with them but you're relating to the interjects and you can be allowing the interjects to control your behaviors to control your thinking to prevent you from going out and exploring to prevent to keep you in limited spaces and and places and certainly the person who's been in a intimate relationship with a narcissistic person or had a narcissistic mom or a narcissistic dad and a relationship with a narcissist you have an introject that that person is godlike in your mind they are shaming you they are ruling you they are telling you uh how to do things and how to behave 
Does does this all make sense? Or am I just rambling? <laughs> now, think about this in religion. Because I now, when I'm in religion, and I'm relating to God, and I'm relating to Jesus, and I'm relating to the Holy Spirit, I'm relating to a representation in my mind because there is no objective external representation. See, if I relate to you, there is an objective person out there. Now, I can get things twisted between us in my head, and I can go out and tell a story about you, but the story that I'm telling is coming from the movie that I'm playing in my mind. So it's the introject who did those things. It's the introject who has those personality traits. It's the introject that I'm telling you about, right? Well, if this person also has a relationship with you, and let's say that I'm saying negative things about you. Let's say I'm saying devaluing things. Let's say I'm gossiping about you and I'm telling stories. Well, that, that, that's all the interjection. That's all the avatar that's doing those things. So then this person can come to you, right, and get an objective point of view. Hey, Aaron said thus and so about you. What's that about? Aaron said this and this and this. I can interact over here to sort of sort it out. You see what I'm saying? Because there's the internal interject and then there's the external objective individual that's out there. Assuming they have not died. With God, there's, there's no, everything is occurring in the mind. Everything is occurring in the realm of consciousness. So the Jesus that I'm praying to, even if I'm not making a picture in my mind, I have a picture, I have a representation that I'm just not conscious of. So I'm relating to an interjection that was given to me by the community or that was given to me by the group. When I'm hearing sometimes that shaming, condemning voice of scripture, that's an interject. That's an interjected godlike voice that's living on the inside of me. And this is why it can be so hard for people to leave religion when they realize that it's toxic. This is why it's so hard for people to break up with Jesus, if you will. Because they don't want to lose the internal image, the internal representation. They've built this love relationship with Jesus. And Jesus loves them, even though at times Jesus makes them feel devalued. The Jesus that lives inside their universe makes them feel devalued or criticized or limited or ashamed or devalued, not as good as, dependent. Let me help you. Let me care for you. Let me do. Let me provide for you. It's a lot of the stuff the narcissist does because they want to make you dependent. So you are a stable source of narcissistic supply. But see, that, that internalized Jesus can be doing the same things. So to break, to, it's, so, so they'll say, I can leave church, but I haven't left Christ. I, I can leave Christianity, but I haven't left Christ. It's the people in the church that hurt me. It was the doctrines that were wrong. So then we start photoshopping. We start photoshopping or, um, because these are movies, what, 
how would I explain this? Um, mm, we start digitally editing the movie to make the interject of Jesus more palatable for us. Oh, I was wrong about Jesus. So we recreate a new interject, a new image, a new avatar, a new internal representation within my own universe of who Jesus is because I don't want to have to break up with Jesus. And then if there's this fear that surrounds this of going to hell or being punished or being cursed or being lost or not being rewarded enough because you weren't a good and faithful servant... See, and you've got that interject in your universe. So this is why it's so powerful and why it's so damn hard sometimes to get out. Because just like I said, no one can come live inside your subjective universe. But you can create avatars. You have to. Or you have no object permanency. Since you were two years old, you've been creating these avatars. And what happens is, is when an avatar becomes an interject, when there's no critical thinking, when it just becomes shaped, you go and listen to message after message after message on Sunday mornings, or you get it growing up from your parents, and you get it in church, and you get it reinforced in the community, and you get it reinforced in the school, and you get it reinforced in your social circle. Pretty soon, this interject becomes so big and huge. And for most people, it's just kind of this vague, vague, far off kind of thing where we wonder about God or we worry about God or it shapes our morality or stuff like that. But no, in the circles that we were in, we wanted to get intimate with God. We wanted to get intimate with Jesus. We wanted to have a personal relationship with him. Listen, I would much rather, knowing what I know now, I would much rather devote myself to a religion like Catholicism than have a personal relationship with Jesus because the personal relationship with Jesus is my personal Jesus who I have given the avatar now lordship over my life and I've made him my lover, my caregiver, my everything. So then, then I can change ideologies. I can change systems. I can change friends. I can change churches. I can change denominations. I can go from being a legalist to being a grace preacher. I can go from being a grace preacher to being a progressive Christian. I can go from being a progressive Christian to being a Buddhist, but I still can't let go of Jesus. And that's partly why we stay in bondage. We are being gaslit from the inside. We're being abused from the inside by the interject, by the image, by the representation, by the avatar. And so what is, what is there to do? Well, you have to get rid of it. You have to say no longer uh, I just, I'm seeing comments come in. Uh, I'll go over them in a minute, but I just saw Derek said, uh, Derek Day said, uh, breaking up with Jesus is hard. Yeah. It's, 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 it, so to use my experience, I told you guys, I think last week that I was in a therapy session six, seven years ago and <clears throat> I was doing some EMDR work, which is trauma related intervention therapy. And I got into this issue with my introject, with my image of God. I had in my mind this image of God sitting on a throne. And my therapist asked me, is God uh, sitting there judging you? And I said, no, God is sitting there in wrath. See, if there's judgment, there's still a chance that you're going to come out on the good side, right? But no, he's sitting there in wrath. So this was a much deeper, much more powerful, emotionally powerful experience 
than just he's sitting there in judgment. But I'm relating to, so I'm reacting to, with fear and sweating and trauma, I'm reacting to the interject, the image that's in my mind. And my therapist says, you need to tell that image bullshit. And I thought, I'm not telling the almighty bullshit on his best day, (laughs) much less when he's sitting there in wrath. And so I said to myself, or I said to her, I said, I, I can't do that. And so she says, well, just go up and give that image of God a big old sloppy kiss. And I thought, okay, that I can do because the Bible says love the Lord your God with all your mind, heart, soul, and strength. See how I'm being controlled from the inside? That I can do. So I go up to the interject in my mind. So you have to learn how to work within your own internal universe. If you want to heal, if you want to get better. So I go up and I give a big old sloppy kiss to this interject, this image, this avatar of the Almighty. And immediately it just like collapses the entire avatar, the entire interject of a God out there who could have deep filled hatred and wrath for me completely vanished and it was absolutely life-changing it was absolutely game-changing and for me it happened in an instant uh sometimes i tell people when they have interjects with uh people they need to destroy those interjects in their mind it's not enough to convert them it's not enough to photoshop them it's not enough to heal them. Sometimes you have to destroy them. Remember, you're not dealing with a person. This is not a physical reality that I'm talking about. It's not a physical destruction. It will have absolutely no impact on the other person, but it will have tremendous impact on you when you get free to start asserting your will and yourself, your core self. See, most people live from a core self, and they have interjects, and they have... Uh, uh, representations and they have an inner critic and they have guilt and they have, you know, voices, mommy and daddy in there. And they might even have a little Jesus or God sprinkled in with that, but they're living from a sense of a core self, an executive self that is uh, guiding their life. When you become really devoted to religion, you completely surrender that self. You completely and totally surrender. You you give up that self. You're told to crucify that self. You're told to destroy that self. And then you're simply relating to, in intimacy, this interject, this avatar, this character in a movie that now has become all pervasively Lord over your life. And it will, ironically, take on a life of its own, just like my... Just like that image of God in wrath took on a life of its own. Just like uh, I remember uh, one particular Thanksgiving, I think it was Thanksgiving of 2020. Um, there was a lot going on in our lives and, and COVID was going around. We'd been exposed. And so we did a social distancing Thanksgiving, even among me and my two, my wife and my two boys. And we, we were eating at distances and we were anyway. And I remember uh, one of my boys sitting there eating uh, in his pajamas without a shirt on. 
And I said to myself, my mom would be so disappointed because we always had to dress up for these things. And, but it was a little bit further than that. It was like, and I said this to one of my colleagues, I said, my mom would have been so disappointed. And she just came back and said, you don't live in your mom's house anymore. And so I realized that those interjections can still have power, but when you have an all pervasive one, so the narcissist becomes the all pervasive Lord and King in the mind of the person. They're not acting out of a core self. If you're in a narcissistic intimate relationship for any time at all, that in that, that they become your, the one that tells you how to live and who you are and defines you and all that stuff. It's not really them. It's the image. That's why I said the shared fantasy. It's the image that you give of them. See, and so you have to get rid of that interject. You have to kick Jesus out of your heart, as Daryl Carlson uh, says. I should bring Daryl on and we should do a, an episode about that. I think we did one on Freeology Friday a while back about that. But it's okay to dis- dismantle and destroy those interjects. And how do I do that? Aaron, how do I do that? Well, you pull it up just like you would anything else. You pull it up. And remember, it's just a photograph. It's just a movie. And you can do it in whatever way is best for you. If you're hearing a critical voice in your head, listen to go, go inside, listen to that critical voice, pull up that image. What does it represent? It might be mommy. It might be daddy. It might be a boyfriend or a girlfriend. It might be a teacher. It might be a religious leader. It might be Jesus. If you're having an a relationship with Jesus in your imagination where you're going into a garden and you're being there with him doing all that stuff, just know <clears throat> that that's, that's not, that's part of the shared fantasy. And that, that, that could be, that actually could be your problem. <laughs> why you're struggling, why you're not getting ahead in life. So you pull it up, hearing the critical voice, you pull up the image or you know, and I have an avatar, Jesus. I have an avatar mom. I have an avatar dad. I have an avatar. I, you can have an avatar enemy. This is why we talk about people living rent free in your head. You know, avatar enemy, somebody that's hurt you, somebody that's wounded you, and you just keep going to war with that person in your mind, and that person isn't, is a thousand miles away. So you gotta take those images, those photographs, And then you have to get rid of them in whatever way feels right for you. This is an individual process. Nobody can tell you how to organize and govern your personal internal world. That's your job. But I'll share some things with you that I did. I, for a while, had a giant furnace, fiery furnace. And I would take these images of these interjects and I would throw them like Nebuchadnezzar. I would throw them into the fiery furnace and let them burn up. Uh, At other times, I have... beat the shit out of them in my head. Uh, but th- th- it's okay to take some of that destructive energy because these things have no place in there unless you want them to have place. If you want to give them place and space in your life, in your internal universe, like I said, nobody shares that with you except for the characters that you populate it with who are either real or imaginary characters that you're populating your inner world with. Now, when groups get together and do this as a group, then they create an egregore. The egregore exists, but the egregore exists within the group mind, within the hive mind. 
So there can be a Jesus that exists within the hive mind and the group mind that's interacting with all of you. But that's a video for another time. I've done some videos on the egregore. So I hope this helps you. I think this is one of the most powerful things you can do, becoming aware of your interjects, becoming aware of your own internal universe, and dismantling the parts that are causing you difficulty and causing you problems that are causing you shame. Now, there is a place for healthy um, guilt. There is a place for healthy um, uh, conscience. Uh, there are times that my mom and dad speak to me, their avatars. I haven't destroyed those avatars. I just realized they're avatars. But there are times that they speak wisdom to me. There are times they speak things to me that will keep me in line with society. Um, so, you know, there are times that I hear the voice. There, there are still times I hear my old swim coach's voice in my mind, and I can see memories of stuff that he talked about where he spoke wisdom to me that may have been hard stuff that I didn't want to hear, like, Quit making excuses. Uh, winners don't make excuses. Winners overcome adversity. Um, those kinds of things. Those are important lessons to me. So even though they're unpleasant to hear at times when I want to make excuses or I'm in adversity and I don't want to overcome it, uh, still important to hold on to that. So, um, but you'll, you'll figure it out. You know what's right for you, but that can be something that can be very helpful. I had to get rid of that introject of the wrathful God. Um, my own self, interestingly enough, before, and this is where I'll close, because I did the whole going into the garden with Jesus and meeting with Jesus in my mind and my imagination and entering into this world of consciousness, entering into my subjective universe. And Jesus and I had a lot of interactions together, the Jesus avatar in my brain. And <clears throat> I did not have to deal with that when I was coming out of religious trauma because what happened was the interject just left me for whatever reason. Um, I went through a, about a seven or eight month span where I would get up every morning and I would go into this place and have intimacy. Uh, and when I say intimacy, I'm not being creepy. I'm talking about just, you know, into me see like, uh, like they talk about it in a mystical sense. I would have relationship. I want to be clear because I don't know what my audience to think really bizarre stuff, uh, even though this is kind of bizarre. Uh, but we would have fellowship. That's a better, that's a better word for it. We would have fellowship together and, uh, and I would learn things from my avatar. I would, I would learn things from my avatar. I would get wisdom from my avatar. I would know things before they were going to happen. I would have precognitions from my avatar. Um, and it was a really enriching, wonderful time, or so I thought. And then one particular night, I'm dreaming, and I'm walking down this mountain with my avatar, Jesus, with my interject, with my representation of Jesus, the one I've been fellowshipping with. I'm walking down this mountain, and this mountain has a timeline on it. We're going back in time. As we go down the mountain, we're going back in time. And I remember in the dream, my brain could not comprehend this. And I looked over at this avatar Jesus and I said, uh, I said, I'm, I'm really struggling with this. Like I struggle with the idea of time and there being no time and space or there being something outside of time and space. And my avatar, Jesus, said to me, unless you 
let go of your concepts of time and space, you can never taste of the power of the age to come. That's in the scriptures, the power of the age to come. And then he disappeared. He vanished. And I've never seen him since. (laughs) Oh, to be so lucky for the rest of us, right? Uh, but that was a devastating thing. I, I thought I felt abandoned. I felt discarded. I felt devalued. Where did you go? What happened? I had, I was so completely disoriented that it took me an, <laughs> another, <laughs> another eight months, hell, probably longer than that, um, to orient myself so that I was leading by a core self, by an inner self, by my own personal self. So I've had to go through a lot of process. I mean, I'll just be honest with you. I did not have a healthy sense of self when I came into religion and religion just did worse things to my sense of self. And so the last seven years, especially has been a time for me to, of recovery. It's been a time for me of uh, exploration and healing. It's been a time when I've made a lot of mistakes as well. Uh, trying to, to heal and recover and, I talk about this stuff because I'm trying to share the journey. Uh, I talk about this stuff because it feels a little bit redemptive for me. Um, but I hope you, that it's beneficial and that you appreciate it. And I don't want to just major on this. So I don't want to become the religious trauma guy or the deconstruction guy. I, I don't. I would rather delve into other areas. But you guys uh, had such a tremendous response to the first video that I did on this that I just felt like I wanted to come back and kind of complete it. So let me see uh, if I can read the comments here. Yeah. Lots of good mornings. Uh, yeah, Derek says breaking up with Jesus is hard. I think I'm managing uh, Christianity fosters codependency. Yes, it's it's a it's a intercourse there I would say it's a it's a it's a wild torrid affair um as Christianity fosters codependency and codependency fosters Christianity there's a exchange of fluids <laughs> um all right yeah that's about it so thanks guys thanks for joining thanks for watching this thanks for sharing this and by the way those of you that have helped us financially I just want to express gratitude to you from the bottom of my heart. Um, I do have a donation link at the in the link and in the description of all of these videos. If you like what we're doing and you want to uh, see us be able to create more of this type of content and other type of content uh, that you think is helpful for you and helpful to the world, then uh, I invite you to uh, donate to us to help us to do that. Any amount is helpful. Some of you have been giving monthly, um, and I'm just so deeply, deeply appreciated, uh, appreciative of that, whether it's $5 or $500, whatever contributions have come in, one-time donation or a recurring donation. Uh, again, thank you from the bottom of my heart. I love all you guys. I do have a Facebook group called New Day Global Facebook group private Facebook group where we're trying to uh, build some connections for people. A lot of people that go through this uh, 
process, don't have anyone in their life that they can talk to or any place that they can, any connections or like-minded people, so they feel very alone. So that's one of the purposes of the group. Also, so that we can put out more content and teaching material, stuff like that that will be helpful for people. So you can join the New Day Global group. And if you haven't uh, gone to my YouTube channel and subscribed to my YouTube channel, um, like, comment, I would appreciate all of that. Otherwise, uh, hope you guys have a wonderful rest of your day. Thank you so much for taking your time, whether you're watching it live or by replay. And I will see you again next week.